You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. There's a whole, like, kind of, like, list of animals and, like, basically animal rights type of thing. Of, like, what you can and cannot do to an animal for research or other things. And they, and there used to be this weird clause. I think it's, it was particularly in the UK. But also there was a version in the US um, about, like, you couldn't do certain things to an animal. So there was literally animals that were not categorized as an animal <laughs> because they weren't intelligent enough to be considered to like feel pain and certain things. And so you could just do whatever they want. And cephalopods were up there for a long time. And actually some of the recent kind of cognition stuff with them actually got them up to a list of like, yeah, we can't just do whatever we want to them. Like there needs to be regulation because these are actually intelligent creatures that we're dealing with. Hello and welcome to Drinks With God, a podcast about alternative theological experiences, death, and life. All of the following content is based on each interviewee's own personal experiences and is meant to be educational, not confrontational. Cognition of rituals of history of etc etc etc. But so let's see. You, you have your your background, um, your masters. You're working on deciding the whole doctorate thing. But you have you've got your masters. It's a it's a psych, psych masters. Um, a psych master's in animal behavior, at, um, essentially, right? What right. So I went to Hunter College for my MA, and it particularly I got it in the animal behavior and conservation program, which is part of the psychology department. Um, and just talking about when you talk about animal behavior or ethology, that makes sense. It's usually characterized in either. Um, it's, it's really weird, because especially even, like, when I was looking for, like, doctor and stuff, it, it's either in the psychology department or it's in the biology department. Um, and that makes a lot of sense, actually, these days, because a lot of animal behavior is not just the behavior part, but they usually combine it with some type of other biology. So, like, for example, neuroethology, which is neurology and animal behavior. So, it's just, a lot of people who are working animal behavior are... Um, doing a little bit of both, yeah. basically. And we were talking a little bit before um, we started recording about how the whole idea of, you know, people admitting, just the same way, like, a psychology, like, that's not a hard science. The whole idea of, like, animals having emotions and animals and animal cognition, that's a very new idea. So, like, how how new is the field, actually? Um... Well, animal behavior, it's actually been around for a very, very long time. The concept, anyway, because um, as soon as people started actually really thinking about psychology, um, people started trying to combine, to compare animals and people. Um, 
And the fundamental thing to remember uh, about animal behavior and kind of even when you start talking about the trend of looking at animal cognition and getting people to just get to the idea that animals can think, um, you have to think about some Rene Descartes, basically. Um, it's, a, it's somebody that comes up a lot, philosopher, and he kind of basically narrowed it down. Uh, people's mentality about animals has been pretty much the same sense in one way or the other, the idea that um, we are people and people are special little snowflakes that <laughs> have consciousness and the soul. You know, we have souls and animals do not have souls, do not have um, consciousness. So they are just, um, and Renee, I believe it's Renee Descartes, who is kind of like the, um, kind of like the auto, the ro kind of like the robot, like animals just respond to things they are a a kind of mecca that just responds and reflects so they don't actually have any sort of like thought it's just literally like it touches something so it does a thing so it's kind of like a a, a rolling every animal is just a rolling ball of mass and, the, and there's nothing special about it what makes us special is that we not only react to things but we think about things and it seems weird that you think at this point like 2018 2017 that we probably got to the point of dealing with animals um in a way that they are considered intelligent but in reality we haven't really gotten that far from that it's, it's still one of the big challenges of animal behavior is convincing people just that that animals are not just these kind of like auto little mechas but actually creatures that can think and possibly um feel um and if you look at animal um behavior that's actually in some ways you can almost sum up the whole subject of hey there's these scientists just trying to convince you that animals can do things <laughs> so despite the fact that you have to start from square one for so many conversations <laughs> when you're working on things. Let's uh, let's move a little bit past square one here. Yeah. Let's assume that we've we've actually gotten that point across and that people understand that um, there's a lot of instances that I'm sure people read about, whether it's like from a BuzzFeed article or from like a special on, you know, National Geographic about um, whether it's a parrot that after like decades of working with the same um, person, like has a very distinct personality and um is able to like respond in a way that's like new and interesting when it comes to stimulus in the lab um or just the, the very i'm sure most people know about the whole elephant funeral thing which is something i was very excited to talk to you about just because i'm sure my listeners are well aware of the fact of how much i love death but <laughs> <laughs> um in your experience in your personal experience before we get into the um any instances you might know from um, from research in general or, or the history of the field? Um, have you? I know that you work in the Children's Museum, mm -hmm. and there's plenty of animals that you have to deal <laughs> with every day. Um, so what, in your experience, do you come across um, in terms of not only um, animal cognition, but like interspecies cognition? Like, I don't know if the animals are allowed to interact with each other all that much, but... Um, at the museum, we don't really keep the animals together too much, but there is kind of, you do get, like, interplay, um, if, in that you really do feel like the animals kind of know each other in a way. Um, we have, for example, very large, 
lady iguana named Butch, um, who sits next to our bearded dragon um, named Spike Jeremy. And Spike Jeremy doesn't like Butch too much. <laughs> so when Butch comes out, um, Spike will actually start doing his kind of threat display. It's, it's actually a really cool thing if you've ever seen uh, Bearded Dragon actually do a threat display. He, he, he gets all puffy and his beard gets all black and he like looks like he's jamming out to like hard rock music with his head. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting. Like having a little seizure there. Um, and he does this every time she like comes out and there was one time, and I swear she did this out of spite. Like she <laughs> climbed like a bunch of buckets we had and got like in his face. And just sat there and looked at him. <laughs> like, like, so it's like, just moments like that where you just kind of, you feel like animals are connecting and there's personality there. Like, it's, you know, as a, as a scientist, um, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit more, there is a reluctance to try to um, put personalities onto things um, because of the history um, in that regard. But for me, when it just comes to person personal stuff. I'm not writing down data and stuff like that. I would absolutely say that almost every animal I have ever dealt with has some type of personality. And especially when you work with them long for a long time, it feels like you're you're working with a person, like you're getting to know a person in a way is that you're getting to know that animal. That animal has very particular um things that will distinguish like there's a big difference between Butch, the female iguana, and Iggy, <laughs> the male iguana. Like they to me, have completely different personalities, and um, I guess looks wise, yeah, from a long time, for a long time working with them, like I, I obviously can see the difference with them, but I can also feel the difference between like if I saw, I feel like if I saw these iguanas from a long way, I'll still be able to tell the difference between the two of them just by the way they carry themselves and the personalities that they seem to display. Cool. Um. So just. To st- stay on this point a little bit, in terms of any, um, in terms of any, any sort of like landmark studies or um, f- famous cases you might know about where um, the idea of animal cognition has been like considered clearly defined, going on beyond learned behavior or um, projected personality, because those two things, of course, I'm sure, are always like argued as. Yeah. So. Well, it, it's complicated because a lot of people argue, well, what is, what is intelligence? Because every animal is built for it to do a specific thing. So, for example, I want to give the same test, um, an IQ test or um, puzzle test that you would give to an elephant that you would, you want to take those tests and give it to, like, a bird because they wouldn't have um, the, the skills or even, like, the limbs needed. But, when, but in general, when talking about cognition and kind of things outside of learned behavior and such there's been a lot of different studies in that just um for example um talking about primates everybody loves primates for that for those type of reasons their tool use um even they have um i guess in some ways it's lands in learned behavior but it's different that they they have they can't pass on um, tool use and such like they've had japanese macaques like um teach their kids how to open open um certain things with particular types of rocks and this is not something that is just kind of like built in um learn behavior this is like this is actively kind of like education from yeah. child to, uh, from parent to child which is a you know a big step that goes into the idea of culture and animal culture yeah. um and this is and they've seen this in several different like kind of groups of monkeys and 
very specific to those groups. So it is very much kind of almost argue as a form of animal culture. Um, I've had um, a professioning offer. Um, he was a German gentleman who worked a lot with finches and birds, and he was trying to do a very big argument for animal culture within birds and and bird song um, because there is there have been some studies kind of connecting bird song to kind of genetics and um, like it, there's a limit like nature versus nature there's a limit to what you can do of what you're given. But he was also arguing that there's a certain culture within song and that like certain songs can become very specific to a certain group and within the same species so it's kind of like just as like we have a community different communities have different kind of culture things he was making an argument about like that happening with bird songs on very specific groups especially isolated groups of different species um can have um their own kind of like song that's very specific to that group um what else? Uh, I know that uh, corvids are also, their memory and their tool use are both, like, pretty famous at this point. Um, and at least I'd observed the ones, we both went to undergrad together, so they're, um, like, the crows and the ravens that were uh, flying around the campus, they would, there would be some that would be, like, hanging around particular a particular house over by that, the, that particular dorm, um, and it's like, that would also seem, I guess, a generational thing. It's like, oh, yeah, you will get food if you hang by this tree with these yeah. people. Like, like the, like we will coexist with these people. Like, that also seems like, would that tie into the whole animal culture thing? Um, in a way, yeah, because it is, becomes a thing of which there's... Culture is hard to define, but yeah. when people talk about animal culture and try to compare it to people culture, they think about something that is passed down and... As I was saying before, not necessarily connected to that specific species. So in a way, that can get close to almost culture, kind of like, um, yeah, um, my mom told told us, and then we told our kids that, yeah, this is a place to go for food. Um, but I usually try to kind of extend it to more of like a, beha- a specific, very specific behavior. Um, because if it's something like a location, unless that location becomes kind of a hub for that particular group, it can become... Some people will argue that it's more like association or word of mouth in a weird way because yeah. birds birds are crazy. They will totally trigger things. Um, they are very, very good at communication. So basically, I, I guess if it went over generations and certain behaviors start showing that become more of a culture. Um, if it was just that area uh, for a short period of time, you would. It was. It could still be argued that maybe it's just like these birds spread around the hay that's food here. Yeah. Um, but ravens and such are crazy just in general because they're another great tool use um, type bird. They're very, very. They will figure out to get into anything, and they also been known to make their own tools as well. Like thing that we probably on primates, they were actually one of the really big breakthroughs when it came to because. For a long time, primates were the only intelligent kind of animal. Like, yeah. every all the other animals were um, nothing compared to primates because, you know, primates are supposedly the closest thing to us. So when they started seeing things like birds do this type of stuff, it totally blew people's minds for a long time. Um, and actually, just to go back to, to monkeys real quick, um, monkeys, apes, chimps, um, in general, like, I'm trying to remember exactly what kind of primate it was, but... Uh, Inter, 
intertribe warfare that um, has been like widely documented at this point. Um, that I definitely think would be a big argument for the the validity of um, animals, like have, having having consciousness, having motivation, having the ability to to predetermine their actions, mm-hmm. um, because you're looking at documentations of raiding parties, um, like for for te- for you know territorial purposes, but um, I mean, like, could you? Sp- speak to that in any way, just because that seems like a, like a very big argument in favor of. Um, well, con- talking about warring parties, um, when you start talking about apes and primates, they are very good, uh, it's, it's no wonder that people get really kind of, like, into apes and primates, not only because they're close to us, because they are very good in organizing themselves, and, like us, very good at organizing themselves, making themselves into groups, and doing stuff, crazy stuff like that. Um, baboons, for example, have their whole hierarchy and group. They have groups within groups, like, oh gosh, I'm spacing on the type of baboon, but there is one baboon in which there's literally something like eight layers of hierarchy. And it's, and it's literally just kind of like you have like the subgroup and then you have these two separate zones hanging out with each other and then the families and such like that. And that will also determine on who's going to fight who in the long run. So it's really kind of like their groupings are really advanced and that, that does go into a whole nother thing of cognition and communication with animals because just to be like hey i know that you are in the family with so and so thus you are my enemy let's duke it out that type of like just really um how they keep track of relationships of everybody and just that just the fact there's so many levels because you know it's one thing to be like oh on this one little group, obviously the other group's a bad guy. When you have like eight layers to that, almost kind of like a like a city, like there's there's like I don't know, like let's say there's um Brooklynites and Bronx and such like that, and we were all just our individual groups, but then we're all part of New York, right? And yeah. so and so on, like we're all part of the US. It just is literally like kind of like the ape version when it comes ape um monkey version when it comes to baboons. And it's just that kind of, it's once again going back to trying to convince people that animals think and so like that. It's just that kind of like layer complexity. It's just kind of like, come on, guys. It's like. <laughs> yeah, obviously something's being thought out. Yeah, like. Uh, I, I do definitely want to talk about elephants, but before um, we jump into uh, any sort of like funeral customs or rituals or things like that, I know that there's another kind of ritual that you have, you were at least. I know doing undergrad work on mating rituals. Right, yeah. Like, that is something where I find very interesting because that could be, on the one hand, very um, instinct motivated. That can be something that's like very, like, oh no, an animal's gonna do that, obviously, because like there's a very specific reason to do so. But that, so many different animals will have mating rituals that play into social hierarchy. Mm-hmm. That play into like how they're using the environment whether they're like a fish that's like building a nest and decorating a space um or if they're a um, um a stag that's like marking trees and uh, during the rut right. so like that seems like it could go either way for me like what would be your thought on that um uh, main behavior it's crazy. First of all, we're humans are boring <laughs> <laughs> compared to animals. Because animals go through 
other animals go through so much uh, for mating behavior. Um, if you're, we're talking about, like complex plant patterns, like if you talk about like circles, um, like circles are particularly famous for like um, prairie like chickens. Um, and it's basically this thing in which you have all these fe all these females kind of like come to this area where all these males meet, and they all have these little tiny circles, but they're like right next to each other, and they're like displaying. But it's kind of like if you're the bigger, prettier male, you get more and more to the center. So it's literally like it's like a spatial, but also kind of like a, a actual behavior thing. So it's once again that kind of like there's multiple layers to this and there's so many studies just trying to figure out how do they find the right place, like why is this circle being made, what's so great about the middle, how you decide who gets to be in the middle, like that and get all the chickadees, um, that type of thing. Because as far as you get further out the giant circle, you're, you become more and more lonely, which is kind of sad. But, <laughs> um, but it's still that kind of thing of like we're still racking our brain and there's people who spending their lives just looking at like circles being like how are these chickens getting here and so even like when you start talking about mating behavior or even like spiders there is a whole range of there's some males that do a whole like um display and which is all about distracting the female long enough for you to mate with them or they'll eat you beforehand yeah. <laughs> um Male, and I've actually read a paper recently, because um, I was going to, like, uh, write a summary of it for something else, um, of just talking about how they're now figuring out that maybe um, silk, they're talking about silk and pheromones, there's kind of evidence for silk having pheromones in it um, for many species, but there's not very little known about how it's being used and such. And it's being seen that males can tell from like the pheromones, but not only that, but males have may have pheromones in their silk as well. And they do this thing which they call silk wrapping, which they actually cut the silk and roll it up to make it shorter. And they think the combination of that of getting the pheromones in their silk within her silk will actually um, kind of get her exposed to their own pheromones as well as make the web tidying so tighter so that their vibrations. Um, get to the female as well because the vibrations are stimulating. They, they give her some good vibes <laughs> to attract her. So it's the more you think about even mating behavior, crayfish. Um, when I was an undergrad, obsessed yeah. with crayfish. Crustaceans have really interesting display because they have displays. They fight, and yeah. the females can actually watch and be like, "Oh, that guy won. That's the guy I want to be with." Um, there's a whole paper about um. At one point, they were calling it voyeurism, which was not really quite <laughs> the right word for it. Now they call it eavesdropping, um, social eavesdropping, when an animal is actually able to watch an interaction, get information from that, and that actually determines the relationship from that what with that animal. Like um, animal A, if animal watches B and C fight, um, that information may affect how animal A um, interacts with animal B later, which was. You know, to be honest, something that people didn't think animals could do. Like, they didn't think animals can do something like, oh, Joe and Bob got in a fight over there. Bob got really messed up. I'm staying away from Joe. Like, they didn't think animals could do that. Because um, even, like, crustaceans, um, crustaceans are not thought to be the smartest animals ever. So they, literally a lot of people didn't think that crustaceans had the ability to recognize conspecifics besides um, smell. Um... So it's just 
it's just in general just a lot of things coming out from the animal behavior and the cognition and that's really just showing that animals are significantly um smarter um and more capable of things all all across the board whether it be castrations or even this kind of like sponges like sponges and such are doing crazy things that people didn't think they could do so yeah um, um and actually the the whole in putting into the whole the mating ceremony thing the fact that there would be a, a fight involved with other like rival males because there are some species where that is not a thing, and there's mm-hmm. some other species where, like, the fight between males is, like, the extent of the mating display. Right. Um, I know that especially, there's other, there's other species where they'll work together. Like, there's that cord, what kind of bird, I think it's a bird of paradise where they, like, the, the oh, primary yeah. male is going to be, like, the main dancer and the rest are, like, the backup dancers. Right. Basically. Um, like, that, that's a whole other thing like how is that determined like who's deter- like is it is it just size is it something else like um what's really interesting about the parasite bird and i i also forgot the name of the very specific parasite uh paradise bird um but it's it's i remember it's particularly a black one that does a really cool kind of like buzzing thing with oh, yeah, like an- quick vibrating yeah with this weird like antenna feathers and they <laughs> hop it's actually really cool like i don't Somebody should Google it and, and watch it because... I'll, I'll put a link to a video of it in the show notes. Because they do a really cool thing. They do a real routine. Like, they jump around each other and everything. It's really synchronized. It's like watching ballet, but with, like, birds. It's really pretty. Um, oh, there was a paper talking about that, and they were t- saying an advantage to, like, kind of the young... Usually, the second dancer is a younger dancer. And, yes, it is, like, they cooperate to make this really great display so that the male the older male can get a mate. And some people, at least the ongoing theory is the idea of almost like internship. It's like he's the intern and he's learning how to do this dance so that when it becomes his turn to mentor and um, get a mate, he'll be like the best thing ever because he's had that practice. Already. So it is, it is in fact passing on a, a specific kind of dance to be successful in mating. Yeah, so it's, okay. it is a form of passing down um, and the idea that um, because he's doing this dance now, he's going to get better. He's going to learn from this experience. And then when it becomes his time, he's going to be an expert at it. So, um, so that, that's also another really interesting, um, idea of cooperation kind of working out. Another interesting thought about cooperation and just talking about mating behavior as well is cichlids actually. Um, yes. African cichlids on this, the lakes in Africa, like Tinkanaka and, uh, this, Two other lakes. Wow, I I'm sorry. I'm like <laughs> we're uh, we are drinking. <laughs> yeah. Um, what are, what are we drinking by the way? What you uh, this is um Laquito. Uh, it is a uh, I may have said that wrong too. Um, but it is a very creamy drink. Um, some of my mom's actually uh, Spanish students made it for Christmas. It's typically something they made. It's something close to Ponche Crema. Um, like the island folks like punch a cream and then the Spanish folks do this for the holidays. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I don't know what we're drinking. All I know <laughs> is I was poured something from a, a mystery jar pulled from the fridge. <laughs> I'm a very trusting host. <laughs> but uh, so the African cichlids. Right, African cichlids. So um, what's really cool about the cichlids is that they people really love to say them due to um, evolution because there's a ridiculous amount of cichlids 
with different behaviors and different setups. And so there's cyclists, like the cyclists that everybody thinks of that are really dominant space. There's subordinates and then there's the dominance and the dominance kind of protect the territory and keep all the other fish away from the territory so that they can have this female kind of come and lay her eggs. Yeah. And you get all types of those, like you have some that just kind of have holes, like in rocks that they kind of protect. And there's the really cool one that actually puts all of his women in and shells and it carries them around like it's a little <laughs> female shopping spree. It's kind of great. Like a like a you know a bag a bag harem. Yeah, a bag harem. <laughs> um, but then you have the cichlids that are actually like polyamorous cichlids that actually um, raise young as a community. So in these um, little societies, are usually kind of like an alpha male, alpha female. And so they would kind of, um, basically they would be the ones that would be mating. And then everybody else would just be making sure the kids don't get, like, run off and get eaten and stuff like that. Um, so just, so that's just an example of kind of, um, the different type of dynamics you can get even just in mating behavior. And mind you that all these, like, cichlids kind of all eventually go back to very, very close ancestors. Like, this is, like... A lot of evolution, a lot of separating that happened in a very short period of time, and yet you have all these type of like different dynamics and just kind of um, different ways to make things work. So it's it's really interesting because to think about the the key thing to think about with cognition, and even when you start talking about people and how their cognition works, is about adaptability. Like, what do you need to get what you need done? You know. Um. Yeah. Uh- I just think that's really fascinating how the whole pod will work so that only one couple passes on um, and has offspring. It seems like um, almost counterintuitive, but I guess that means everybody's ensuring the survival of the maximum number of kids. Oh, um, like, well, sorry. Well, I mean, like, that was my guess. Like, I, I, I know nothing about cichlids. So. <laughs> well, it's, it's it, when you start talking about situation like this collab it's like another thing to think about is kin relationships um that's okay. a big thing um when it comes to anytime animal behavior you want to talk about why um any animal will do something that seems like not directly um good for them yeah um you want to start talking about kin relationships and particularly what that means is it how related are you okay so for example if you happen to be uh, which is probably the case with some of these cichlids um if the person that you're helping raise their kids is your sister or like your direct sibling, then that's basically like your kids. Like they're your, yeah. your, your nephews and nieces. They're very closely related to you. So a certain amount of your genes are technically in there. They're, they're getting passed down. Um, and theoretically under that theory, as you become less and less related, then there's less and less advantage to you um, helping. Um, that even goes with meerkats. Meerkats tend to be community, um, based. Like, I mean, multiple meerkats mate, but they tend to help each other, um, raise their young and such. And that usually connects to the fact that a lot of meerkats in, in similar families tend to be relatively closely related to each other. So helping one fam, one family with the kids or babysitting their kids with your kids. Those are your nieces and nephews that you're babysitting. So the, the, they share your genes. You're they, helping them survive will help your genes get into the next generation. I think that, that just speaks more to um, the whole idea of like animals recognizing each other and having that level of cognition to form tribal bonds, as opposed to 
a self-serving, purely instinct-motivated, um, you know, robotic animal that, uh, you said Descartes earlier? Well, that, that Descartes proposed? Yeah, I believe it was Rene Descartes. Uh, we could double-check that. Yeah, we could always double-check that, but yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was him who talked about the automaton. The automatron? Yeah. yeah automatron. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he, he kind of set the basis of just as, like, like I said, he, he was really, everybody quotes that when so he's talking about, like, what's the difference between, um, man and animals, um, which goes into a whole argument about consciousness, which is, like, a whole other kettle of fish, um, yeah. A whole other kettle of, uh, a whole other pot of, a uh, female cichlids in your male cichlid purse. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so, I'm gonna bring up the thing that I'm super excited to talk about. Elephant funerals. So, um, the fact that elephants can recognize not only they're dead, but, um, the dead of other species, um, and that they pause and that they acknowledge that, and that, um, they've been observed displaying fear and confusion when, um, when they come across unexpectedly the carcass of an elephant, um, I, I find that fantastic. Um, I'm sure that there's many, many other things about this subject, um, across the animal kingdom in general that you know about. <laughs> uh, I know very little. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting because when it comes to death rituals, um, the elephant's one is the main one that comes up. Because it, it goes kind of back to the initial problem that I mentioned at the very beginning of this talk is acknowledgement that animals can feel, animals can, um, think. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, scientists who are kind of reluctant to be like, okay, these, this is mourning. They are mourning these. Because it's kind of like, it's weird because if, for example, if my aunt died and I was sad or whatever, you wouldn't kind of go up to me and be like, are you mourning? <laughs> Can you prove to me that you're sad, right? <laughs> yeah, that's... That, yeah, but people do that with animals. It's just kind of like, well, how do you know the animal? The animal could just be like, oh, there's, there's bones there. Like, or freaked out. That, like, it, so there's kind of this thing of like, anytime anyone even kind of think of like, the, an elephant ritual the, the, with the funerals is like a very vivid and, you know, especially when you talk to like people who study elephants like a lot, they have a real attachment to elephants because they have proven to be very intelligent, very capable of like even like understanding human emotions like it there's some at least i believe there's some folks who have done um some studies on even like elephants like trying to like understand human feet facial features and understanding what oh human sad human upset which is you know honestly dogs do that we have plenty of um you know that dogs have to like being with humans, being basically raised to kind of work with humans, have a very distinct understanding of body language, human body language, and can tell when yeah. um, they're upset and such. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure domesticated animals are a whole other... Yeah, they're, they're, they're a whole other kind of fish because they're basically made for humans, and so they have a, they do have a set of human understanding that other animals do not have. Um, but when, going, when we start talking about elephants, though, like, they've there's studies about elephant language, like, they seem to have that whole, like, there's somebody who's literally writing a book on animal language, <laughs> so, do you, happen, um, do you happen to know who, or, um, I would, that's another one we would have to kind of, like, uh -huh. look up, but uh -huh. that was, that was a whole thing, they actually had, like, a short, 
I want to say like PBS had a short like little like news segment or documentary about this person who's been studying elephants while and was literally trying to make like almost like an elephant dictionary for the language for the elephants. That's fantastic. I'm going to, I'll see if I can look that up and if I can find anything on that, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah, sorry uh, guys. I'm like bad at like direct references. That's, that's okay. Uh, it's, it's one of those things that when you work uh, in animal behavior, so that you end up reading so many things. And so, unless it's like direct, a lot of people like really specialize um, so, like, for example, I, if you're an elephant person, you know everybody who's an elephant. But if you ask them about who's working in crayfish, you'll be like... So, it's kind of that type of thing of, like, um, you just get so much stuff that you're, oh, so-and-so, you know, these things have been done, but sometimes it's kind of hard to keep track of who, who did, did it what and who and, did yeah. it first, that type of thing. People have gotten into fights about that, too, at, at meetings. So, scientists are not... <laughs> Perfect people. Uh, they get kind of ridiculous too. Um, but yeah. Um, elephants are really, and so when you kept talking about animal, uh, elephant funerals, everybody admits to being like, elephants do this thing. But find somebody who's going to be like, I, elephants are warning. They are feeling something. We need to do this. Um, like, to, to directly put that to an emotion, it's, people feel hesitant to do that because they can't prove it. And that that's the first thing that comes out of somebody's mouth. It's yeah. like, how do you know? How would you prove it? Yeah. Yeah. And so talking around it seems to only, like, strengthen the point, actually, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, we're trying to, you know, be scientific and, and, and very, you know, concrete about this, but it seems just like all signs point to... <laughs> the elephant in the room. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> it's like um, they're doing something because I've I've seen some like um, writings on this, and they'll be like, "Well, we don't know what exactly they're doing. We, we know they're standing and, and staring at the body and, and and patting it and standing for a very long time, longer than an animal should if they were doing anything else but feeling really bad about it." Well, we can't tell you what that is. Yeah. So it's it's really one of those type of things of what if they can't explain it in a scientific fan fashion, then it's kind of like it's not a yeah. thing. It has to with, be pushed uh, pushed to the side. Yeah, that doesn't stop people though from like recognizing that this is a thing, or even stop people from trying. Like I'm sure there's somebody sitting right there now with their like PhD thesis, just being like. Do anything. Just do something after right now and like quantify this to be like here. This is sadness and numbers. Um, oh, sadness and numbers. Sadness and numbers. Um, I mean, that's what a lot of like cortisol and oxytocin like yeah. studies are basically about when it comes to animals. Um, well, I mean, short of the horrific uh, prospect of needing to vivisect an animal while it's in the middle of morning to be able to prove <laughs> what's going on, because that's just a terrible, terrible <laughs> place to have to put, ha- place to have to put science. Um, let's see, um, there, I'm, I'm sure that there's other species also that have been observed doing similar sort of ritual. I'm, like, dolphins maybe. I mean... I'm, I know that they're, uh, they've got to be really interesting for animal behaviorists. 
dolphins are another relief favorite when it comes to like cognition um even like emotion things because they've done all types of things like mirror recognition like they can recognize themselves in mirrors um that's really cool um they can they've known to do certain things there's literally if i remember correctly um there's a woman named diane reese um who's actually associated with the hunter program and she was doing a lot of um dolphin work particularly with like um, just talking about that mirror stuff and um, just in cognitive like tests and showing that they're not only um, self-aware but just kind of like aware of their surroundings and such. Um, I haven't heard too much about um, mourning or um, kind of um, death, like them dealing with death. Like there's been kind of like video and such of dolphins being kind of curious about their bodies, like poking, a, you know, a dead dolphin and seeing if it's moving and just kind of like, which is always, of course, like it's the tearjerker, like watching the dolphin be like, hey, friend, you're not moving. And it's like, oh, oh, you're not moving. <laughs> it's like, and it, it's almost kind of like watching have that kind of like, similar with like the elephant funeral, just kind of watching them have that kind of realization that this that this is an ex dolphin not no longer with us dolphin. Um but dolphins have also oh dolphins are really interesting like even just talking about emotion stuff because there's all types of like dolphin in play and just cause they're they're the type of creatures that they have been shown to do stuff for pleasure or even like mess with people for pleasure. Like they're very um they're kind of vicious. Yeah, <laughs> they're kind of they're a little sadistic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's a lot of studies about that. So that's another animal that people really kind of look to for when they really want to see some kind of like almost human levels of intelligence, human levels of expression. Um, dolphins is is like right up there. It's like primates, dolphins, and elephants. Um, when it comes to that, they're all pretty high up there. Okay. So um, I know that you specifically did work with um. With crustaceans, did you happen to do any work with, um, or like read it, read much recently about octopus? Because I know that they are also pretty high up there uh, on the intelligence food chain. <laughs> yeah, um, what's really interesting about like octopus, octopi, octopi. They, that, octo, they, it, that's still debated, by the way, whether o- it should o- be octopus or octopi, octopedali, octopedali, or octopod, octopods. Yeah, octopods. Cephalopods. Cephalopods, yeah. So, um... <laughs> let's just bump them all in together. Yeah, let's just put all those names... It's still semi-debated by some people about, like, what's the proper plural for. Well, <laughs> we're still debating that. Yeah, Because uh, there, there is a strong, a strong um, push for octopuses. Um, but it's kind of similar to, like, how... Or just octopus. Like, because you know how, like, platypus is not platypuses, it's just platypus. Um, as the plural. Um, yeah. So, sorry, that was a ta- really <laughs> weird tangent. <laughs> okay. Um, Those happen. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's, that's really interesting because for a long time, believe it or not, like, cephalopods, like, I believe, like, in UK, you know, there's a whole, like, kind of, like, list of animals and, like, basically animal rights type of thing of like what you can and cannot do to an animal for research or other things and and there used to be this weird clause i think it was particularly in the uk but also there was a version in the u.s um about like you couldn't do certain things to an animal 
So there was literally animals that were not categorized as an animal <laughs> because they weren't intelligent enough to be considered to like feel pain and certain things. And so you could just do whatever they want. And cephalopods were up there for a long time. And actually some of the recent kind of cognition stuff with them actually got them up to a list of like, yeah, we can't just do whatever we want to them. Like there needs to be regulation because these are actually intelligent creatures that we're dealing with. Um, but that always bothers me for a very long time because I'm like, how how do you characterize something that's not an like just say something's not an animal because you yeah and it was a weird law thing but um yeah no some they're there's a lot of things they they're finding out about let like, them the another they're another really great puzzle solvers like they can get in and out of everything there's a really cool video of a octopus that has been escaping its tank for years escapes it does some crazy thing like still dude's keys gets into like another tank and eats all the fish and it gets mm-hmm. back out before anybody and he knows where the cameras are just like literally a video kind of like when you watch it you, you can tell that he can actually see like has somehow figured out that this is either where the humans can see me or whatever and he like purposely stays out of camera so it's, it, they're going to be like our overlords. Like when we all like die <laughs> out, it's probably, if it's not the roaches, it's going to be the octa, um, octopi that, that um, takes over. Because they are, they are very, very, um, they're very, very clever. And actually, I think I saw on one of your um, feeds about them having cities and such. And- yeah, there was, um... <laughs> Uh, if only it was a whole big city. Um, <laughs> over in the Indian Ocean, there was a whole bunch of um, octopus. Um, I'm just going to go with that because it's easy. Yeah. Um, so octopus, like the for for those in the audience who do not know, typically they lay eggs and they they starve to death, making sure the eggs are oxygenated and protected. Um, so that's generally where a lot of their uh, their lives end when they they reach sexual maturity. They breed, and then they die off, um, making sure the eggs make it. But there's, there was, and I don't know what the state of that is right now. This is a, a couple of years ago at this point. Um, there were a lot of abandoned coconut husks that were obviously discarded and had made their way to the floor of the Indian Ocean. And scuba divers, and then later passing scientists who were also very interested, discovered the fact that octopuses octopus were using these as protective shells and collecting together um i think that there were maybe like a dozen of them 30 at most um still that's a fucking lot yeah (laughs) um and they were like communal like they were huddling going out to hunt coming back to the huddle because they were a protected mass and they're pretty solitary, aren't they? Like behavior wise. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, you don't they're not like fish. You don't usually see um octopus like in huge like schools of they don't usually I mean you may find like a couple in a similar area, but they're not like communal. Like they don't yeah. really like chill out in like giant schools or anything like that. So they yeah, they're usually pretty individual unless it's mating season. Which, um, which is what I thought was really, really cool because they weren't really changing their hunting pattern. They were still going out individually to go hunt and do their thing, but they were all coming back to the same spot where the coconut shells were 
so they could hide under them and be safe from predators. Because that's the big stretch of the Indian Ocean where it's just a big desert underwater. Yeah, no, there's nothing to hide from. There's yeah. no coral reef or anything. Yeah, it's just miles of flat. <laughs> yeah, and they created just like you know a little huddle um, in the middle of it, so they could go. They can hunt for things like in the sand or whatever, and they were kind of like creating their own just octopus reef. So I don't know if, like, if that were to be kept up to the point where they did almost like the penguin thing, where they would lay eggs, some of them would go hunt, and then some of them would come back, that would be fantastic. I don't know if that ever happened, though, because I don't know how far... I'm sure scientists are, like, still keeping tabs on that. Yeah. I'm, I don't think that, like, scientific, like, interest would have ever waned. Yeah. <laughs> that, no, especially with something like that, because that in itself... If almost in some ways to bring it back to the culture thing because that becomes like something that it could be something that could be passed down. Yeah, that's a new behavior. Um, yeah, it's a whole new behavior. It's a whole new like little society. And, and that we scientists eat that up. Oh, yeah. Like when, like for example, when the Japanese macaques started like washing sweet potatoes on the beaches and like eating them there, like scientists were like right there, like this is the best shit we have had in years. <laughs> so trust me, you're right. Like macaques there's gonna be. <laughs> Macaques have nutritional hygiene. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, I I mean, if one thing that TV did sort of get right, like, there's a lot of things that get exaggerated about, like, scientific research. Yeah. We do get excited about, like, things that people will be like, what is wrong with you? But we will be like, oh, my God. <laughs> did you know? Because that type of thing, it's, it's just amazing because it's just... It's also just, even when you start talking about, like, the evolution of, like, people, it's just kind of like, it's, it's literally watching, like, a creature come from one point to another. So it's just, it's, it's amazing. It's just kind of like, this could go anywhere. I mean, they could make a giant octopus mecca out of coconut shells. <laughs> oh, you know, like, this could literally mean so many things. Um, and, you know, it may seem, like, ridiculous to some people, but this could... Tiny little stuff like that could be, like, a real game changer when it comes to the animal yeah. um, kingdom. Especially when it increases their survival, because then they become better competitors. Yes. And possibly, and better predators and so on. So, that in itself can even change up, like, even if they don't change, their prey, or even their predators may change in response. Because, and, and that's, like, co-evolution, like... Most of the time, when one thing changes, something else has to change. Because as they get better at protecting themselves, whoever eats them, gotta get more creative too. So. Yeah. No, it's a, it's an all natural arms race. Yep. <laughs> Nonstop. Mm. Yeah. No, octopus are like they're crazy, and I'm really glad that more people are really looking at them and like really trying to understand like the different things that they are capable of. Yeah. That remind me of there's an octopus crud. I'm pretty sure it's an octopus, not a squid. But it's an octopus, is it I wanna say it's like the cuckoo octopus. It's named after another animal because its whole thing is that it imitates things. And it will actually use its legs in its body and like squish it and such to make itself look like other sea creatures and then copy its actual their actual swim movements. Yes, I think I like I've seen video of this, and I'm pretty sure most people have, just because it's it's fucking great to watch it go from one to the other. Yeah, no, it's insane, and then, I think, I could be lying about this, but I believe there's been some more research in that, and it's, like, they've, I think different octopus, depending on where they, what they've been exposed to, they learn 
different swim movements and different things to imitate. So even even variation that sort of thing. Yeah. Although I mean that would make sense because they're they they're working with what they're surrounded with right. to, for imitation purposes. Yeah. Yeah, it would be like it wouldn't do them any good to like imitate a parrot or something. Like <laughs> I don't see any need. Yeah. Whatever is gonna look natural in the background. <laughs> Scoop it ever just see a fucking parrot going past. That's a goddamn parrot. It was just uh, an octopus. Remember <laughs> that game Octodad? Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. I was, I was thinking about Octodad. Yes, this whole time <laughs> we've been talking about octopus. <laughs> I've been thinking about Octodad. <laughs> so great. Oh, it's a fantastic game. Mm-hmm. So glad that it did so, that it did so well and had a sequel and all that. Yeah. Before I um I, I put a pin in this. Is there any like major animal um habit or behavior, like I, like some some of these you you wouldn't even call a full behavior. So if it's an animal that you like you know or that you've worked with personally, would you like just you think is fantastic and it's like your personal favorite? Because I mean, there's just so much to know and so much to learn with this. I know that you haven't really specialized just yet. So, I mean, like, do you... Is there anything that, like, you think that you might specialize in? Or is there anything that you're particularly drawn to? Um, what I've been looking for for, like, one thing about PhD stuff, where I've been working stuff, is that I am... It's interesting that we talk about cognitions, is that because I am a big fan of sensory systems, um, I love talking about sensory systems and just looking to see how sensory systems affect everything from, like, um, just, like, cognition or um, decision-making in particular. Like, when I worked with Dr. Um, Poise, Dr. Thomas Poise, in his lab, I looked at multimodal integration, which is, um, multi- when you talk about multimodal integration, it's literally taking two sensory, taking information from two sensory systems and having that affect, um, whatever reaction they're having. So in my case, I was looking at audio visual and seeing how that affects startle responses, so whether it increases or decreases the startle response. Um, and that's involved in kind of like talking about decision-making because as you can imagine, trying, especially with like fish, um, when they startle, it's a one-to-one thing. Like they, they either startle or don't startle. So having to make that decision whether you should be getting out the way or just standing there, is very important. That goes with any kind of like decision. Like how do you decide when to um, go for a prey, when to go for something else? Um, and I've always found all that kind of stuff of kind of like how does an animal take in? And that's one of the, one of the reasons why even undergrad I was kind of looking at crayfish and kind of the um, social eavesdropping as like one of my last senior projects. Is I always thought it was fascinating how we're able to take whatever information that's coming from the environment and make decisions with that do have some type of reaction to that. And that even to this day has been kind of like my main thing of just kind of like seeing how animals are able to take the information that they're given with and do crazy shit with it. And so that, that if, if anything, that's kind of some of my favorite stuff with um, animals is just seeing behavior like that. Um, and, just things like even like the octopus are just being like, oh, I see these animals in my environment. I'm going to pretend to be these type of animal. Or, um, so I'm sorry. I just, once again, tangent. No, no, no. <laughs> but that's, or even kind of, of all the thing I also like is just kind of one of my favorite things about animals is talking about cross-species co-op. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't even touch on that. Yeah, because that's a whole nother, like, subject. Yeah. Um, when you get to even, like, ants, there's, like, these, this, um, 
I think it's an African species of ant that it lives in a tree and the tree makes like little um, fruits for it to eat and in exchange the ants keeps all the other um, bugs away from the tree. Like it's an, an active relationship between the plant and the ants. That's fantastic. Um, you have, you know, rhinos with their weird bird that eats things off of yeah. them. Um, yeah, you know, like pilot fish also. Yeah, pilot yeah. fish. I think that's the most well known one. Um, but there's a lot of people, and we're finding more and more of that, like, animals that have those kind of, like, um, relationships in which they both help each other to survive one way or the other. I'm sure there's tons of, like, um, bacterial, fungal, and plant ones that, like, aren't aren't even tapped into yet. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Or, Or ants. Ants could be their own thing because they do so, talking about cognition, oh my god, ants. Ants. Actually, ants probably over octopus just because they already have slavery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's right. Ants have already enslaved other ants. Yeah. Um, they've already enslaved other ants. Um, they garden. Yeah. They actually um, keep track of um, fungi and different other plants and actually grow um, active gardens in their um, communities. They also raise livestock. They have the... Um, Type the little there's these little green bugs I think called anids or something. They, oh, uh, aphids. Aphids. There yeah. you go. Like ladybugs love to eat them. Yes. Um, uh, oh yeah, I, I had seen this. Um, is it? It's not the same species that both. Yeah. No. Fungi and eats the and and raises. Yeah. Aphids, that, that's but, the that's the thing I didn't quite mention is that there is a slew of ant species and they all specialize in different yeah. things. Each of them does their own fantastic weirdly human-like behavior. Yeah. Um, I believe the ones that grow the fungi is the leaf-cutter ants, because I believe they cut the leaves up and they use it as a mush to help with the... Yeah, they don't actually eat the leaves. They, um, which... I don't know how how long that was considered to be a thing, but I remember because, uh, uh, our mutual friend, Ned, is just, is, uh, very, very into insects and, and, uh, (laughs) um... Told, told me a whole lot about ants at one point. Um, but they, that is essentially like the, not the manure, the mulch, the whatever, yeah. that's the feeder. We for were in the, a class yeah. together once, and it, 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 that was just the whole week of both me and that going like, ants, man. Just <laughs> ants. <laughs> that and wasps. Wasps are the jerks of the animal kingdom. I still believe this. I've not been convinced of that. <laughs> um, they're important, but they are jerks. Um, what do wasps do? <laughs> I, I was of the opinion that they're just jerks. Um, they... <laughs> they I mean, do they, do they pollinate any more than bees do? or do They, they do... don't really pollinate. Yeah. Okay. Um, wasps are kind of like... Well, one thing I will have to say, every animal, if you really look into them, they have some type of way in the circle of life of even keeping things mos- balanced. Even a mosquito? Mosquitoes, believe it or not, pollinate chocolate. I've heard this that they apparently put. So if you kill, okay. <laughs> so mosquito. all of you out there who hate mosquitoes, think about how much do you love chocolate? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if it's one species of mosquito, but I've read somewhere that those guys actually pollinate chocolate and some other um, because they land on stuff and then, like any other buddy, land on yeah. stuff and then they spread it. Um, and I think apparently. I've, like I said, I could be I could be wrong about this because the internet is very vast. But I believe there's there was an article actually hooked up to that. A a, a um actually not like you know shady article <laughs> um that they are attracted to chocolate 
from the smell. So that's how they end up actually kind of being one of the pollinators for it. Is that oh. something about the smell of chocolate either like reminds them of blood or who knows what, and they end up chilling out there for a little bit and then spreading it. For those of you who really love chocolate, think very, very hard about whether or not you're secretly a cannibal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but wasp actually. They're just really good at basically fucking up all the other bugs so they don't outgrow. Like, they lay their eggs in, like, caterpillars. And this is crazy because, yeah. talking about ants being crazy, and this is actually messes them up for being too smart. But ants, there is a species of ants that take care of caterpillars. Um, like, almost like livestock. Like, they'll take a caterpillar into their, like, little hut and then, like, basically raise the caterpillar and what wasps do they'll lay their eggs in the caterpillar and then next thing you know it's just like they're covered in wasps <laughs> and it's just like oh god and, but ants are cool because sometimes the ants can actually be like wait there's a wasp thing in here stick I'm gonna kill it ants are crazy don't mess with ants <laughs> yeah I'm sure it's like a whole other episode yeah. um of course now all I can think about is cordyceps oh yeah cordyceps <laughs> Um, fungi. Yeah. Crazy fungi that, um, and what's really interesting, they're basically mind control fungi. Um, yeah. Also, like, uh, that's, that's a whole other, like, to talk about, like, how smart and how, um, how much proof of cognition and interspecies, um, intelligence there is. Now that there's a, there's a mind control fungus out there. <laughs> yeah. Specifically designed to kill them. <laughs> and it's really, what's really interesting about the ants is that there's, the species, the species that affect ants is that it will actually control the ant and make it go to the highest place that it can get to. And then it'll do like a handstand and then it will bloom out of its head and spores. So it's just kind of like, it makes it walk for a pretty good distance. And so yeah. zombie ant and yeah, crazy. You can also get that on um, this cr- other cr- like kind of like crustaceans can get get certain like. Types. Oh yeah, I've yeah, seen it on like moths. Yeah, and... moths. It's basically any type of I won't want to say hard animal, but I believe they did find. Did they find any crustaceans? Not crustaceans. Sorry, I, I, I meant like bugs in yeah. general. Like you know, uh, it, 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 different species affect different. Yeah, I mean, like, each cordyceps species is specific to each, like, whether it's yeah. um, this kind of arachnid, this kind of ant, this, like, this Yeah, they ant, specialize, this, and they're all very yeah. pretty, actually. Oh, yeah, they're so pretty. And the, then, the cordyceps growths are really pretty. Um, now that reminds me of Pokemon. <laughs> uh. Yeah, some of the Pokemon look like they're uh, a creature that has a cordyceps problem. Well, actually, no, <laughs> it's like Parasus, and that's actually his background, is as being controlled by the mushroom that's on his back. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like... Pokemon. Frightening children since <laughs> the 90s. It's like, that's a... <laughs> that's dark. But yeah, no, the animal kingdom is really interesting um, place. There's talking about cognition. or just kind of like how different systems work. And, um... It, it, that's the thing that... It, it's nice to see that it's really becoming kind of a thing to look at other animals and really be like, oh, we can really, you know think about humans by looking at animals and vice versa um which like i said animal behavior i want to say till it got really into like something like 60s 70s um it became like more of a serious like thing and that was mostly around when they started talking about um actually learned behavior like learning um through positive stimuli and negative stimuli 
that type of thing. That's when things started to get serious <laughs> for animal behavior and nature versus nurture arguments, stuff okay. like that. So. And I'm sure that um, actually brings me over to the point of uh, domestic animals. Okay. I'm sure that's a like like we'd said that's like that's a whole other ball game. Yeah. Um, what kind of studies have been done along those lines? Because I'm sure that learned behavior and um, I don't know whether or not imprinting is going to come into play with that. Because um, I, I had worked in um, when I was younger at a res- at an animal rescue with specifically imprinted animals, mostly birds of prey. It was kind of terrifying if you didn't know it was happening. But, <laughs> <laughs> why is this eagle coming? Oh, it thinks it's a baby. It wants me to hold it. Okay. <laughs> um, yes. So, like, imprinting is going to be very different from domestication. But how would you tell the difference between the two? Ah, uh, well, well, at least with domestication, domestication takes years. Um, it, it's a form of kind of like flash evolution. So, for example, when you start talking about cat breeds and dog, particularly dogs, dogs have been bred. Different species of dogs have been bred for different tasks for very particular temperaments. So we've had a huge hand of what dogs look like today. Um, they're very much um, man uh, manipulated. Um, consider the pug. <laughs> yeah, consider the pug. Um, so a lot of the temperament, like we we literally sorted out the genes that we wanted, and to have the perfect weird fuzzy ball that we, we want for any particular situation. So and because of that, so pretty much ever since we kind of like had wild dogs, kind of like chill out in um near like campsites and whatnot um ever since then when we started like really getting them active into like human lives and started selecting for certain um uh you know kind of certain genes we made like i said we made the perfect i want to say the perfect companion but we made the companion that we needed so it just like after so much, there's a lot of studies just talking about this like just kind of like as you domesticate an animal as you get an animal that has been with us for so long, it just kind of comes natural for them to be in some ways more, de- not only more dependent or attached to us, but also have a better understanding of us. Um, and there's plenty of studies just talking about, as I was mentioning before, dogs understanding human body language because they've just been um, with us so long and been bred so long for us that it just kind of comes naturally to um a lot of dogs. I mean, obviously, if the dog had never been touched by a human before, you know that it's not like it's going to instantaneously going to know everything. And be, yeah. Um, and so there's definitely a form of like sort of yeah imprinting, or I won't say imprinting because imprinting is a whole nother. That that was actually a controversy for animal behavior at one point. Uh, within the nature versus nurture argument. Yeah. Um, mostly because there was a whole argument whether imprinting was actually a thing, whether for example, with ducks, like if a duck looked at you, would it really think it's your mom? And is, is that an instinct thing or a learned thing? That type of arguments that happen, and there was kind of two camps and there was feuds. It, it was it was one of those great like if you ever get really bored, just look up like imprinting um, and learned behavior because that's a whole little saga yeah, in itself. I'm sure it's- um, but going back to domestic uh, domestication. Um, Dog, like I said, dogs, dogs are the perfect example of an animal that has just been so adapted to humans that it it basically sees humans as 
and, and in some ways we've been so like bred to understand dogs in the land like even like i mean you know there's some people who have never seen dogs before or really that's with dogs so obviously they're not as good with dogs but in our in a way we're almost kind of programmed to work with them. to work with them um so it's kind of a back and forth um, and then there's the, the alternative is cats. Now they've been bred for us, but not as nowhere near as much as dogs. Actually, um, even looking back at the history, like we've had cats around for a long time, but they they weren't on as hands for a long time. They weren't as hands on as dogs. Like they were things that you had in your barn, and it was cool because they ate rats or whatever. Um, and they're just they're not they're domesticated. So, in some ways, cats have a certain, like, attraction to humans. They um, have a certain understanding of humans, but not on the level as dogs. Like, dogs be like, human is in my hierarchy. Human is alpha. <laughs> like, that type of, like, but they know the difference between a human and a dog, but it's still kind of like human, like, dogs kind of bring humans into the fore. Well, while cats, well, don't because they're not as domesticated. And also because they're more... It, they're not really pack animals, so that also helped on the dog favorite that it's a pack animal, so it's yeah. already programmed to be a part of the community. Okay. Um, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. What? Questions? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, that's, that's pretty much all the... Oh. You've answered all my questions. <laughs> there is one more cool thing. Oh, yeah? About, about, um, I was talking about Ati's um, toasting. And, um, but, so, when you start talking about, like, um... Oh, yeah, going back to, to the brain chemistry of... Yeah, um, oxytocin, the, the, the famous love hormone. So, both oxytocin and cortisol is complicated because it can be released for different reasons. Like, cortisol is known as a stress hormone, and a lot of people use it to look into, like, stress, like, negative stress, but it's just kind of, like, positive stress, stressors, or just general stress can make you produce cortisol. So, you yeah. have to, it takes, sometimes can be hard to hook up cortisol to certain things but it has been talking about the love hormone um oxytocin which is like produced a lot by you know mothers and when they connect with their babies and yeah. supposedly makes moms yeah. of their kids at least for a, a period of time um there have been a lot of like studies actually doing that with pets and their owners and there has been, like, studies saying, basically, that, you know, pet, you know, we give out oxytocin when we're dealing with pets. They're like, these are our furry babies. So, it's literally, these are our furry babies for us. But there also been some, a recent, I believe, studies with dogs saying that dogs also release from oxytocin when they're with us. So, or even with cats, when they're being petted and cared for, but they release a certain amount. So, the funniest thing about those type of studies was that when one of those studies went, like, viral like there, there's an actual study in a journal um if you ever want to look at oxytocin and pets people have done it over and over at this point yeah. because once people are like oh that's a thing once again scientists go oh that's a thing <laughs> there's a link we Just... should we should jump on that yeah. um there has been more studies on that but um people were really excited about that everybody's like you mean our cats actually love us it's like well they enjoy your presence for a certain period of time. <laughs> that's a strong word. We had like, that's a strong yeah. word. I mean, like I'm I'm am a cat person, and I have a cat who enjoys my presence as long as no one's there to witness it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, that's kind of what I love about cat. Talking about animal personalities is that a lot cats are a lot. It's always cat. I feel like cats are more people than dogs are. 
well, most dogs are, um, because cats are very much kind of like, okay, we're cool. I like it. I need my alone time now, though. Yeah. Which is like people. That's great. Go away. And the and and dogs are very needy. They're more uh, they're more like babies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's actually they can they can get separation anxiety. This that's another thing that people have looked into um, as a study was separate dog separation anxiety. And um, there is, um, I'm sure it's more prone for like some species over others or some specific dogs like their own. Like this dog is more prone to anxiety than other dogs mm-hmm. are. But um, just like I have actually watched that happen. Um, I was at. Uh, I was looking into purchasing a specific kind of dog. I went to go hang out with the breeder, and um, other people were there with their dogs, and um, it was all this one breed. And one person, uh, the gentleman, he excused himself, and he went inside. I guess he like used the bathroom, ran some water or something, and his dog was still outside. And as soon as his dog realized that Daddy was missing, the dog just like froze, and then it started making this ye- distressed yelping noise <laughs> until they saw their do- their owner again, and they just like glued themselves to to his side, like did not want to leave. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like you left? How dare you? I didn't see you. <laughs> like it. It was. It was like that right there. Um, and is that uh, dependency? Is that um, uh, establishing some sort of like? pack hierarchy like that's all there's so many questions right there yeah um i mean it's it's it could be any of those things it could be a combination of those things um especially if the dog is a lone dog because you know some people have two dogs or like we have two cats like for example i have my cat and at least from what my mom says she's a very dependent cat like when if i'm not in the house like if i go on vacation or something and i'm gone for a couple days she looks depressed, like she's sitting in her bed. She she whines, that type of thing. Um, and I think when it's it's interesting because I, I feel like it's just a general animal thing or cross species thing. So ways is that sometimes an animal really attaches to one particular person, and that person is like their foundation, especially when they have nowhere else to go. Um, talked about the children's museum we have. I, I was telling you about earlier, Buddy, he's really attached to his owner. His owner is his is his world. And it's one of those things that is the only time I really got to be in the same place as his owner. He hung out with him and everything. He was on his shoulder. He gave him a kiss and everything. He put him back in his cage. And then, you know, he had to leave with the, the owner. And, you know, it just literally felt like that bird mourned him gone, him being gone for the rest of the day. Like, his world just kind of fell apart. Like, he got reminded that he had a world that was Nolan, and now it was gone, and he was just really silent, and just, like... And, you know, I mean, it's not, that's, once again, one of those things that I can't, like, quantify, (laughs) but you get a general feeling about those type of things. And and that's a marked change in behavior. Yeah, it's a marked change in behavior. So, I've seen it in different species that, like, certain animals get really attached to one particular person or a certain set of people and um you know once again it's it's one of those things that feel very human because you know it's one of those things like kind of like when you're a kid all you know is your parents all you know is a particular person that's your world and if they disappeared and left you in a strange place yeah you will be freaked out like that just seems like a natural reaction to that sort of thing especially with dogs and cats in the city, no less, or in particular areas, they don't have experience beyond their, the, the human that they're um, been purchased 
yeah. for. So, yeah. Well, again, thank you for coming on to the show. Um, if people wanted to get in touch with you, chat with you, well, would you want them to? Is there a way that they could? Or would you rather, like, they talk to you, like, uh, I field you emails from through me or... Um, you guys can totally hit me up by email. Um, maybe felt either kind of like filtered through you, just so I know where it came, yeah. <laughs> the emails came from. <laughs> um, should I say my email? Or? Um, if you want it out there, sure. Yeah, okay. I can always put it in the show notes later if you want. Uh, I guess I could just say, um, my email is jivechameleon at gmail.com. Um, J-I-V-E and the chameleon as an animal c-h-a-m-e-l-e-o-n at gmail.com um if you have i guess any animal questions or if you want me to actually find a rest to the things i was talking about like you're interested <laughs> in um i don't know like nature versus nurture feuds or anything like that i can totally send you some links to things i apologize for not being very specific in some areas that's okay and we'll also um I'll, I'll see if I can find anything, or I'll I'll ping you, and I'll see how much of that I can put in the show notes um, when this gets published. And uh, thank you all for listening. Um, again, uh, definitely uh, follow us on Facebook, on on iTunes, on Spotify, um, on Twitter. Um, again, I apologize for being terrible at Twitter, um, but uh, and head over to our Redbubble store, buy some T-shirts, coffee mugs, stickers. They say things like. Ask me about my death anxiety, and life is short, eat the entire cake. Again, if you want to come on the show, or if you want to ask me any questions, please feel free to send me an email at drinkingwithgod at gmail.com, and you all stay weird out there.